What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Buzzwords Med. Today, we are covering dermatology. As always, I am here with Bobby. Bobby, how are you doing today? Skin is in. Skin is in. Bobby and I have been going back and forth. This is like our fourth or fifth intro. Uh, we've been diddly-daddling. and uh, oh, We've definitely been diddling. Nerves. So it's going to be a fun episode. Yeah, Bobby, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Little Huma by Shorts Brew. What are you sipping on? Huma. Huma? Huma? I'm, I'm sure. drinking the Rolo, the Salted Caramel Stout by Longship Brewing. It's another one of the brews that they pass out to us. And makes nice. Yeah, Shorts sent me this one as well. Fantastic. So today's episode's a little bit different. It's going to be very high yield and, of course, uh, very engaging for everyone. Uh, but I've created this PowerPoint of incredibly tough, high yield dermatology concepts for Bobby, who's notoriously bad at derm right after pediatrics. So bad. with that being s- fair, with that being said, uh, I'll give Bobby a prompt. He'll answer it to the best of his abilities. He's brought two beers today uh, in anticipation of the questions. If he gets it right, I'll drink. If he gets it incorrect, of course, he'll drink. Does everyone understand the rules, Bobby? Bobby, are you aware of how we play this game? Uh, I don't really understand, so I am actually just going to drink whether I get it right or wrong. So it's really up to you to kind of police yourself in terms of whether or not you're going to drink. But besides that, you know, I'm ready to, to rip. Let's go. All right, let's do it. The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink. It'll bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them straight up. Why is the rum always gone? It's sort of an oaky afterbirth. Can obliger for enjoying his whiskey. What was that? Now that's high yield. Cheers. <sighs> Buzzwords. So, Bobby, my first yes. question to you. You have a gentleman come in. He says, hey, Doc, I have a new belt. I was wearing it. Everything was going fine. And then a couple weeks later, I started getting this really angry red rash right where the belt buckle is. Mm-hmm. What kind of hypersensitivity reaction is occurring? That sounds like a type four to me. Ah, oh, well done. It's Why? nickel boy. Fantastic. If you want to go to the next slide, we can show our viewers. Yep, exactly. So this is an example of a nickel allergy. You can see it in the ring shape on the above image and uh, the belt buckle in the below image. It's a type four contact dermatitis with classically classically belt buckles rings things like that the treatment is just symptomatic steroids topical and then of course uh, abstaining from using these uh, in the future you could do things like patch testing and things like that but for the purposes of the step exam um, just understand what it is what hypersensitivity reaction it is and um, kind, kind of common common reasons someone could have it nickel being one of the most common yeah i think nickel is actually like well maybe latex might be more common but i think nickel is actually like besides latex the most common allergy that people have um to like for skin contact and i guess it's because like nickels in the majority of like inexpensive jewelry it's a very common alloy so let's keep an eye out for okay. it nickel is actually one of the uh, more common uh components of a lithium battery i don't know if you knew that mm-hmm. yeah isn't it like nickel metal it's hydrate? actually better than iron interesting yeah but it's a little bit more rare than iron, so right. uh, that's why you need a balance of the two. I don't know cool. if you can tell. I just listened to the uh, Elon Musk podcast from Joe Rogan. So, anyways, I'll drink to that. 
Well done. Cheers. Uh, as a follow-up question, could you remind the viewers at home kind of the underlying pathophysiology of a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction? Indubitably. So this is a specific T-cell-mediated reaction. So the antigen will be exposed. Dendritic cells will take that antigen, will go prime the T-cells, and then the next time uh, you get exposed to whatever antigen that was, uh, the T-cells will have this delayed hypersensitivity reaction. So unlike the other uh, three, which largely have a B-cell component, type 4 is the T-cell. Yeah, exactly. And that's also part of the reason why it's delayed as opposed to like a type 1 where like mast cells and stuff can function essentially immediately versus the T-cells need to be sensitized first before you can have the um, actual like skin reaction occurring. Right. Cool. What else Fantastic. So I'm starting you off easy, Bobby, and I hope you're, you're getting your confidence nice and boosted because I'm going to just rip it apart uh, with these next few slides. So you have a gentleman come in. He's 45 years old. He has a lot of flaking around his mustache, down the T-zone of his face, and he's concerned. He's had this before, and he got a topical ointment, and it helped, but it's now back. And you're talking to him, you're educating him about him, and he goes, what patient populations typically suffer from this? And you say, oh, there's actually two pathophysiologies that for some reason can have a very severe form of this pathology or this growth. What two pathophysiologies or pathologies will have an abundance or an outbreak of this growth? You are describing seborrheic dermatitis, classically associated with one, HIV, and two, Parkinson's. Fantastic. Are you reading my notes, by the way? I am not. All right, I can't, I can't uh, prove that, but I believe you. And that was very well done. I didn't think you'd get that. Have we talked about that before? We've talked about both of those skin findings before. Have we done a derm podcast before? No, it's just something that we always bring up as a, a fun fact. <laughs> Have we done this? <laughs> Have I been here? Where do you think we yeah. are right now? <laughs> oh, that's good. That reminds me of the Scrubs, Scrubs episode. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, I know. I that know was... you were a Scrubs. I'm wearing Scrubs. Why would I not know about the show? I didn't think you knew, were a Scrubs fan. That's interesting. I'm not. I've just seen that episode with you like six times. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good episode. Oh, man. Check it out, guys. Season two. Um, all right. So that's right. Seborrheic dermatitis is an overgrowth of essentially a fungus. Uh, you can treat it with multiple things, topical steroids, selenium sulfide, zinc shampoos, yada, 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 two populations, HIV and Parkinson's, you got to think about. Well done. So Ooh. the next patient comes in and they have this scaly rash along their shoulders and they pick at it and it bleeds and they scratch themselves and sometimes new scaly flakes come up and where they scratched and you look at their nails and you're like, oh, that's interesting. What's a finding that you can find in these patients in their nails? They have abnormal terminal capillaries in their nail beds. 
or they can have nail pitting. I yeah, think you're, 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 you're right. Wanted. You're right, regardless. Yeah, psoriasis. So this is psoriasis, right? Yes, it is. Fantastic. So psoriasis, you get these erythematous plaques. You got the silvery scale. Uh, they're probably not going to ask you about treatment other than if it's mild, you can probably just put topical steroids on some certain uh, parts of it. But treatment for psoriasis is so varied nowadays. There probably is no best answer on this test. Uh, so I don't think it's fair that they would test you on that. So regardless, people with psoriasis, they can have uh, nail findings. Pitting is super common. Onycholysis, kind of like um, oil spots, uh, nail crumbling. It looks like someone's been like working um, as a plumber or it seems like someone's just nails are just unkept. And then if you have a dermatoscope, you can actually look at it and you actually see like uh, little actual splinter hemorrhages in the nail as well. So those are all a couple findings. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones that I wanted to relay to our listeners and our viewers. And you can see an example of onycholysis uh, nail findings on the images on this slide. Well done, Bobby. I think I have to drink because... I think you do. And I will too. I have a follow-up question for you. So when you, you pick at psoriasis and it bleeds, that has a name. What is the name of that sign? Yep, it's named after the uh, German physician, Dr. Ospitz. So it's the Ospitz sign. Nice. Very good. I'll have a follow-up for you since you're uh, hitting me with those one-twos. Uh, when you scratch or you injure yourself and your skin in that scratch, a new pathology or the pathology that you have arises in that scratch. So let's say you scratch yourself and psoriasis forms there or you scratch yourself and if you already have vitiligo it causes some vitiligo changes do you know the name of that phenomenon that is the itchy boo-boo phenomenon <laughs> uh it was very close it's actually the kobner's k-o-e-b-n-e-r oh Not super i have high actually yield, heard that before but uh something for the awards because at least if you do germ rotations they love the kobner's phenomenon well done all right, so the next patient I have, Bobby, comes in, 19-year-old female, and she has these interesting annular lesions across her palms, her arms, and parts of her torso. You would say they're even targetoid. And she says, I know there's a lot of reasons that I can have this rash, doctor, because I've done my research, but what are some of the most common or what is the most common etiology of these lesions in which you would respond? Are you referring to like small targetoid lesions like with a necrotic center? Or are you referring to maybe larger, more bullseye type targetoid lesions? No, multiple small targetoid lesions across her whole body, not just one big one. Mm-hmm. I would say the most common reason is idiopathic. All right, well, give me a give me a reason that's not idiopathic, <laughs> <laughs> or tell me uh, what it is first. So you're referring to erythema. <laughs> marginatum. Close. Erythema. M the M was the M is right. 
And remember, there's there's multiple across your whole body. Yeah, yeah. Erythema chronica migrans is Lyme disease. There's multiple, and they're like different shapes that are like they're formed a little different across your whole body. Is it just erythema migrans? Erythema multiforme, right? Oh, right, right, right. Damn. And for the listener who's been following us uh, throughout our whole time here in our podcast. I've asked Bobby uh, on three cons- <laughs> separate podcasts <laughs> about this rat. <laughs> and he could never remember the name of it. It's his gotcha. It's his gotcha rash. Yeah. Forever. That's a good follow-up question. Like if, if you're ever just trying to stump me, you can just ask me and I, I won't know it. Yeah. So I think Erythema marginatum is the one that you can find in. I think that's the Ian Jones for rheumatic fever. That sounds right. Uh, so erythema multiforma, top uh, number one reason, HSV, so herpes simplex, um, mycoplasma is the bacterial infection you have to think about, and then a lot of drug reactions. And here you can see it on the images below. Perfect. And yeah, it can have that dusky uh, center. And if you got a bunch of it and it started getting painful and started sloughing off and having a positive Nikolsky sign, uh, you might be worrying that it's transitioning into something much more dangerous. And what would that be? So that would be Stephen Johnson syndrome. Or Perfect. And then what's epidemic? a barrier to make it TEN? It is, I believe, 30% body surface area. Yep, perfect. So that's right. So if you go to the next slide, you can see someone uh, who's transitioned from EM all the way to SJSTEN. In this case, the treatment is ICU level of care. Essentially, treat them like a burn victim because they're going to have a lot of exposed skin, a lot of electrolyte abnormalities, fluid loss, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, isn't well the done. mortality for like this, once it gets to this point, fairly high? the 60 to 70 percent range definitely it's really the one of the few dermatologic emergencies it's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons that dermatologists will wake up in the middle of the night and maybe go into the icu or maybe at least talk to someone Mm -hmm. rather than just look at some pictures on their phone and right and make an assessment well very dangerous stuff i'll drink to that all right bobby you're doing better than i thought you would i knew you wouldn't get that one well, I thought you wouldn't, but uh, the other ones I, I'm impressed so far. So let's keep moving. So good. the next patient I have comes in. She is a 52-year-old female. She's seeing a pulmonologist, and there were some suspicious findings when she went in for a chest x-ray, and they found that she had a lot of, like, uh, she had some opacities kind of in the, the hilar region of her lung. Uh, she's a little bit more short of breath. And you do a full body exam and you notice that she has these really painful bumps, red painful bumps on her legs. What what are they? So she Let me know if you want a hint. Has I know what they are, I just don't remember what they're called. She has like either Sjogren's or like systemic sclerosis. Um those painful bumps on her leg are don't remember what they're called let me help you out so this woman came into a pulmonologist they're concerned about a disease it's actually a granulomatous disease and she has some hyalur lymphadenopathy she has an elevated calcium and they do a full body exam and she has these kind of red nodules that are painful across her legs and her arms. Does that help at all? No. 
Fantastic. So, uh, these painful erythematous nodules are like erythema nodosum. Right. And they're incredibly tender to touch. They're seen in a lot of patients. Very specific pathologies that we should know about when we see erythema nodosum. Those include sarcoidosis, which is what I was getting at here. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. One of the classic things is erythema nodosum. Multiple infections. If you think about coxoides, for example, and you think about the sketchy and the red uh, lesions there, erythema nodosum uh, is something that you can see there. And then some drugs can do it as well, sulfa, um, birth control, among other things. But sarcoid, IBD, coxoides, I think those are the big things. Treatment is just removing uh, the triggering factors. Bet. I think I have, uh, what's the term when you like learn something? And then you learn something else and it like kind of overwrites what you learned the first time. I think it's like interference. I think I'm very susceptible to that with the different erythema terms. Yep. <laughs> interference. There's so many. Erythema marginatum, erythema nidosum, erythema multiform. Chronic uh, migraines. It just goes on and on. <laughs> erythema. You love it. Everyone say it with us. Erythema, erythematous, maculopapular. It's beautiful. It's the go-to words. All right. Oh. oh, there you go. That's that's what our viewers and listeners like. All right, Bobby. So we talked about SJS and TEN as an emergency in dermatology. We actually have some other really severe diseases, one of them being actually potentially life-threatening, so one that we should consider. And those are our blistering diseases. And the two blistering diseases we often talk about are pemphigus vulgaris and bolus pemphigoid. So I think what's important for our step two uh, listeners and viewers is to understand how to differentiate one from the other and just the subtle hints that they can see in the passage uh, that will help them move towards one diagnosis or the other. Because sometimes the stem won't give you all the information that you need because it's classic. I mean, you can say, you know, desmosomes versus hemidesmosomes, like the stuff that we all remember from step one, but sometimes there's some subtle differences that can help point you to the right direction. So pemphigus vulgaris and bolus pemphigoid, just off the bat, which one is more dangerous? Uh, pemphigus vulgaris is more dangerous because it is more vulgar. Oh, am I not supposed to look at that slide yet? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just keep it, keep that off for now. But yes, fantastic. Pemphigus vulgaris, uh, is more dangerous. Fantastic. Which one will have the Nikolsky sign be positive? Pemphigus vulgaris. Right. So you'll rub the skin and actually sloth off. Which one will you see intact blisters for? Bolus pemphigoid. Right. Because remember, uh, the antibodies are against the hemides hemidesmosomes, which are attaching um, the epidermal layer to the basement membrane. And because of that, you have this nice thick epidermal layer still intact. So the bullae should still be intact versus uh, pemphigus vulgaris where the antibodies are kind of just attacking all the desmosomes and it's kind of just more you know all over the place and you never really have the strong epidermal layer again so you can actually have a lot of uh, basically pop blisters and flaccid ruptured uh, blister quality versus tense and firm all right and so we already just talked about pemphigus vulgaris is desmosomes and then bolus pemphigoides hemi desmosome and then the hardest question uh, is do older patients are they more likely to get bolus pemphigoid or pemphigus vulgaris? I believe older patients are more likely to get bolus pemphigoid. Yep, well done. So the more dangerous one is actually in younger patients. And by younger, I still mean like 50 to 60. Uh, older is like 70, 80s. 
for bolus pentagoid. And then finally, this question, uh, even a, a lot of you know derm applicants don't know this, but which one tends to evolve the mucous membranes? Uh, Pemphigus vulgaris can involve the mucous membranes. Well done. Very nice. Yep, that's exactly right. Did you get any of those wrong? I don't think so. And I have one, one more follow-up for you. Yeah, that's like seven drinks you got to take, by the way. Um, <laughs> what do they look like on immunohistochemical staining? Uh, uh, fishnet and... So Pemphigus vulgaris would be a fishnet. And then bolus pemphigoid would be probably just a linear, linear deposition. Yep, exactly. And if you can remember those, it also helps you kind of remember which one's more serious because like the fishnets all over versus just the basement membrane. And then if you think about like bubble wrap, if you're trying to pop bubbles, like just having one layer is less likely to pop versus a fishnet. Like if you cut an X through it, then it'll rupture, which is pemphigus vulgaris. Love the bubbles. Love the bubble analogy. Anyone, anytime someone says bubbles to me, it reminds me of that, uh, what was it, a shrimp in Finding Nemo that just loved the bubbles in the fish tank? Anyways, I digress. Bobby probably doesn't understand. He didn't really have a childhood. Who's Nemo? <laughs> Why are we trying to find him? <laughs> well done. Okay. Yeah, I took a nice long poll for our listeners at home. Uh, Good. All right, Bobby. So I have a 42-year-old gentleman come in really tired. Uh, just feels fatigued all the time. Uh, actually has these really erythematous, like almost vesicular, red, angry, itchy uh, vesicles all over his gluteal region, his lower back. Sometimes they pop up on his elbows. Uh, you're concerned about an underlying disease. And so you tell him the best treatment and really the only treatment that's going to cause these lesions and his symptoms to go away is what? I know it's very vague. Let's see if you can get it. So he's got vesicular lesions over his butt, back, and <laughs> elbows. And he's fatigued. Very fatigued. I can give you a hint whenever you need one. All right, what's your hint? Uh, he also has been having a lot of diarrhea recently, fatty diarrhea. Oh, does he have um, celiac disease? So he needs to stop the gluten. Nice. Yep, he does have celiac. Do you remember what the rash is called? With Dermatitis herpetiformis. Yep, because it kind of looks like herpes, but it's not, of course. And so, yep, exactly. You have to abstain from gluten. These patients can come fatigued because they have iron deficiency. Other electrolytes or other vitamins, excuse me, can also be... Uh, out of whack as well and then they can also have diarrhea of course because of malabsorption so that's fantastic you can give dapsone for symptomatic treatment at times but really the best treatment uh, is abstaining from gluten there's actually this one time we have this grand rounds in philly uh, where every uh, medical university will put on a grand rounds and all the other ones will go to so like temple will have one jefferson penn and there was a patient that has this really nice dermatitis herpetiformis and of course he's not eating glucose i'm sorry gluten but uh the day of the or the couple of days before the philly grand rounds or whatever this was um he was like oh i want to come to it i want to show you guys what it looks like so he went and ate a bunch of gluten so that he would break <laughs> out into the rash and then like come to the philly grand rounds to show everybody what it looked like i was like that's a nice patient crazy man yeah um but that was dedication huh 
I have a follow-up. Anyways, question. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, tell me. avoid the gluten. Um, so what are the antibodies that you might check on a person? Oh, no, Bobby who has uh, celiac disease. So you, we've talked about this before. We have, and I didn't know it last time. Right, this is your Achilles heel to my uh, to my Achilles heel. Anti. Gliadin, mm-hmm. anti-gliadin, anti-tissue transglutaminase, mm-hmm. and anti-endomysial. Yes, very good. You're very good at Googling. So as a follow-up to that, if those antibodies, if you checked a gliadin and it was normal, but you think this person still has celiac disease, what other concomitant disease might they have that commonly is co-associated with celiac disease? What specific antibody did you mention? Gliadin. Is it thyroid disease? Mm-mm. Is it diabetes? It is selective IgA deficiency. And so that's a little gotcha question that shows up a oh, lot. Oh, is that is... all you're saying is that you checked the IgG and it wasn't positive? You checked. Well, so gliadin and tissue, t- tissue transglutaminase, I believe, are both IgA, and then anti-endomysial is IgG. So that one would be positive, but the other two wouldn't be if the person had selective IgA deficiency. Oh, I get what you're saying. All right. Well done. That's really high yield, actually. People should remember that. IgA. IgA is I... just super important in general, but specifically yeah. in this case. Yeah, I don't think knowing this, like the specific subtypes of the three different antibodies is particularly important, but knowing that um, selective IgA deficiency is like really common in celiacs uh, is definitely worth knowing. Definitely. Definitely. All right, Bobby, you have a buddy and he comes to you and he goes, hey, look at my finger. When it gets cold outside, it turns really white. And it's not super painful. It just takes a while and it comes back and it's flushed and red and beautiful as ever. But this has happened recently and I'm kind of concerned about it. If you were concerned about a rheumatologic disease, what would be your number one rheumatologic concern for this person? Jeremy? I would be concerned about... Sjogren's syndrome. So why would you be concerned about Sjogren's syndrome over, for example, like a scleroderma crest syndrome? That's a good question. And I forget that those are different diseases. I think of them all as kind of like one thing, but that's a good point. Um, yeah, What's crest? What? Crest syndrome is an acronym. It's like the limited systemic sclerosis versus like crest syndrome, which is like the limited one that tends to have more like surface skin findings and peripheral findings. So C stands for calcinosis cruris, which is like just calcium deposits. Um, R is for Raynaud's. E is for esophageal dysmotility. S is for sclerodactyly. And then T is for telactantasias or whatever they are. Oh, telangiectasia. nice. Yes. Very well done. So yeah, exactly. This person has Raynaud's phenomenon. And so it can be isolated. It can be Raynaud's disease, which is an isolated phenomenon and self-limited. It's not going to do anything. 
but it can also be a hint that the person has underlying uh, rheumatologic disease, among other things. Uh, but the classic one is scleroderma. You can also think about lupus and polymyositis and Sjogren's, like you said. So it can be anything. But for the step exam, I think you should really think about Crest syndrome, scleroderma in this case. Um, and know that if it's isolated, it can often resolve by itself, whatever triggered it, whether it be uh, anything from an illness to medication to even emotional stress. Uh, as long as when that goes away, there's a good chance that uh, the Raynaud's uh, phenomenon or disease could also dissipate, but you always want to make sure that you check uh, for underlying conditions. And if you want to treat the Raynaud's, calcium channel blockers and phosphodiesterase inhibitors are so far the two best treatments. Nice. All right. And we have another, uh, we have a video on YouTube actually that goes, dives into Raynaud's a little bit deeper if you're interested at all. So Bobby, I have a baby. So now this is pediatric dermatology. This is like Damn. up your alley. <laughs> the bane of your existence. I have a kiddo. They were just born a couple weeks ago. And they come in with this huge hemangioma on their cheek. And so the mom comes to you distressed. And the hemangioma is not next to any kind of vital organs. It's not going to stop the baby from eating or smelling or seeing or anything like that. It's just kind of a cosmetic thing. And the mom goes, what can you do to help my baby? What do you say? You should reassure her that most of them resolve spontaneously. But if it is not, if the strawberry hemangioma is not resolving spontaneously, I believe you can actually inject beta blockers. Yes, yeah, so you don't inject beta blockers. But you can you can give them topical beta blockers like the timolol that people actually have for like ophthalmic solutions. You actually can rub that on. Hmm. So that's the that's the first thing, and it's only if they want it, like if they're pushing you for it. But you're right; the answer probably is going to be that it subsides on its own. Now there are some babies that ultimately do get oral beta blockers, and that's this whole ordeal giving beta blockers to a brand new baby, right? So the babies have to come in; they have to be monitored closely when you give them the beta blocker. You have to give them, have to let them eat with the mom there because, of course, they can drop their sugars. Um, you have to, you know, monitor their heart rate. And those babies, the reason you're giving them beta blockers is because that hemangioma is somewhere vital. It could be in the neck, for example. They could have something called facey syndrome where you're worried about the hemangioma continuing to grow because when it starts off, when you get a hemangioma, a strawberry hemangioma, when you're a newborn, it's small. It gets bigger, 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 bigger through by like six to eight months. It's at this biggest phase, and then it starts to involute. So if you're worried that it's going to start getting bigger and bigger and potentially obstruct the airway, uh, you know, impede, go into the eye socket, other things that are kind of detrimental to the baby, then you start oral beta blockers. But if it's in a cosmetic area, if it's on the buttocks or on the back, typically the answer is just do nothing. You can give topical beta blockers if the parents insist, and then for life-threatening or, you know, anything threatening, functionally threatening uh, hemangiomas, you can give oral beta blockers like propanolol. Cool. For some reason, I vaguely remember a question. This might have been a pimp question that I got when I was on peds, or it might have been a U-roll question, and I'm just kind of mixing them together. But um, if the hemangioma is occurring along the jawline, or there's multiple ones along the jawline, um, that's actually like a life-threatening area because it usually means that they have ones that are like also internally, like, you know, whatever yep. on the inside. So it's called facey syndrome. 
Oh, okay. That's Facey syndrome. Yeah. All right. Cool. Exactly. So Facey syndrome, just for those that are interested, it's P-H-A-C-E. So it's not like Facey's, but Facey's. I just said the same thing twice. Um, but uh, once you see these hemangiomas covering a large area, you actually, it's an acronym. So you can think about other things. And I'll let other people, it's not super high yield, so we won't go into it, but it's just something to know there is a uh, whole syndrome, a whole acronym for when you get these uh, really gnarly hemangiomas. Cool. All what? right, Bobby. So no, uh, next patient. Hold on. You have. I have a follow-up sorry. question for you. Oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. Um, so you see this picture, you know, it kind of looks like Raynaud's, but it's in a baby that's maybe a couple months old that comes in with mom and it's on one of their toes what are you worried about oh this is what you and heather talked about in that one podcast it's a it's a web of what it's like a a web of what do you mean of what it's a web of a web of tissue no, it's not a newborn baby. They're a couple months old. They were fine at birth, and now they have this. Oh, well, the baby's, baby's crying. They're kind of inconsolable. Yeah. Oh, wait. It's a... Oh, no, no, no. You and Heather both knew this. I didn't know this. It was in our pediatric podcast. It was a piece of piece of string or something wrapped around the baby. Yeah, exactly. It's a hair tourniquet. Actually, surprisingly common in children to get a lock of either mom's hair or dad's hair if they have long hair wrapped around a finger or toe and it can get constricted and it can cut off circulation and it can look similar to this although you'll you'll usually be able to also see like where the hair is wrapped around their digit but right. it's actually severe enough that they can lose the digit if it's not caught in time so just keep Jeez, that in mind can you imagine yeah cutting I off your baby's feel so guilty your hair. yeah yeah Jeez. all right so if you go to the next slide, you'll actually see the hemangioma we talked about. Nice. Fantastic. All right. My next vignette for you is a 42-year-old gentleman comes in. He has a history of drug abuse. He has this horrible rash in the lower extremity that looks like cellulitis. You tap it, um, and he starts screaming. There's so much pain. What are you concerned about? Let me know if you want to hit. I would be concerned about necrotizing fasciitis. Well done. Yep, my hint was going to be crepitus. So, exactly. You see someone come in, maybe you think cellulitis, but they're have there purple skin. With this? Oh, there it is. Yeah, nice purple fade. skin. Uh, there's pain out of proportion. Uh, crepitus, boule, maybe even think about neck fash. They need surgery. That is part of the treatment. It's not antibiotics or it's not just surgery. It's antibiotics and surgery and quick. Definitely. What if you saw a similar type picture after somebody had been jet skiing and maybe they had a little scratch on their leg? What's the causative organism? Uh, probably a mycobacterium. What if they really like oysters? Uh, Vibrio vulnificans. Yeah, nice. That's it, it. It just looks similar. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those oysters when I'm just skiing, just popping out, biting yeah. me. 
Gotta watch out. All right, Bobby, you can actually go to the next slide because the vignette is there for you. It's a long one. So, Sorry, for the what, listener you want me at home, to read this? <laughs> a 23 year old woman, newly on oral contraceptives, comes to the dermatologist's office complaining of a rash on her hands, forearms, and face. On exam, her arms and dorsal hands are covered with oozing erosions and ulcers. Alongside these ulcers are patches of hyperpigmented skin. We find that her mother had similar episodes. What is the underlying etiology? And I'll just preface this saying that this is probably the hardest question I have today. Porphyria cutanea tarda. How did you know that? Damn it. Because, <laughs> bro, I know things. How did you know that? What made you What made you know that? How'd you it was that? the um, hands, forearm, and face, and then her mom having it too. I know OCPs are a risk factor for causing episodes because they are metabolized by the liver. Well done. Yeah, porphyria cutanea tarda. Uh, issue with uroporphinogen decarboxylase. If you go to the next slide, Bobby, you can show the viewers an example of it. Uh, but basically, it causes this horrible condition. I've seen it only once. Um, and it's often has to do with hepatotoxins. So what I saw, it was actually in the setting of alcohol abuse. So alcohol is a huge one in estrogen, in this case, OCP. So those are the two biggest insults. You can always see it with viral hepatitis and HIV, among other things. But um, unlike other kind of porphyria issues, uh, you won't really have abdominal pain. You'll just have someone that comes in with this horrible rash. Um, you'll see that they maybe even have like the port wine urine that we've uh, come to know with this disease. Um, and the treatment really is to like, stop these insults to use sunscreen because really it's the combination of the hepatotoxin the light triggering the skin um, and then of course avoid exposures like i said there's been cases of hydroxychloroquine using but uh, for political reasons we won't recommend it <laughs> nice yep and if you go to the next slide you can kind of just see for the for the viewer just the pathway and you're blocking five the number five there porphyria cutina tarda which is Europorphinogen decarboxylase pathway. Right. This is actually allegedly um, the origin story for, I believe, vampires. Because if I remember correctly, uh, consuming heme actually makes symptoms better. I could be getting it mixed up with the other uh, porphyria, but an interesting little historical aspect nonetheless. Yep, definitely. I think people have called you a vampire now before. What is that? Perhaps someone else. Perhaps. Perhaps I'm I'm done fighting. Perhaps I can either confirm or deny. <laughs> all right, Bobby. I got a 21 year old male comes in, itchy all over, especially at night. And you see the image on the next slide. What do you think it is? One more. Yep. That looks like scabies. Perfect. Yep. Exactly. So in these people. Uh, you see itchy people, you see mainly lesions around the digits inter uh, within the folds of the fingers, within the folds of the toes, on the hands. You want to think about scabies. And then what would be like the first line treatment for these patients? I believe it's topical permethrin. Yep, it is. Exactly. So another hint for this is if other people have it in the vignette, that's also a good hint. So if this was a 20-year-old college guy and his roommate also had it, think about scabies. Definitely. It's also fairly common in the homeless population. So if they give you somebody who like comes in off the street, that's also a little tip off. Right. Or ravers, right? Right. Ravers scabies. Which right. is of we've course. We've had some we've had glitter. some roommates. Yeah. Cool. 
Fantastic. So my next patient is a 42-year-old gentleman. He comes in with these new papules uh, throughout his body. They're really big and scary. And you think, hey, I've seen these in kids before, but not in adults. And they're kind of umbilicated in the middle. What underlying disease do you think this guy has? HIV. Well done. And what does he have? What is his skin finding? He's got um, molluscum contagiosum. Nice. Yeah, you go to the next slide. You can see a classic case of molluscum. In kiddos, it's self-resolving. You don't need to do anything. If the parents want to do something, uh, they can try to free them, freeze them, excuse me, or there's multiple treatments, but the answer is going to be do nothing. Uh, and then in adults, typically you shouldn't have these anymore because your immune system should have learned what it is and should have fought it off. But if you do, and if it's pretty exaggerated, think about HIV because your immune system is obviously shot at that point. Fantastic. Got the pox. You know a lot, Bobby. I'm surprised that you're not going into Durham. I feel like it'd suit you. Anyways, yeah. I digress. So I have another patient, Bobby. It's a four-year-old kid comes in, has honey-crusted lesions around her mouth and nose. What is the most likely underlying bacterial pathogen? That is impetigo that you are describing. And that is due to... Isn't it staph? It's not staph. Not the oh, most no, common, strep. at least. Yeah, yeah, strep. Strep. Yep. Every time I see the word impetigo, I, I say it as in uh, as if I'm saying despacito. For some reason, I always just go, impetigo. Uh, but I digress. So let's say uh, this patient has a brother also with uh, some new lesions, but these ones are kind of more bullets. But you think it's still probably an infection. Uh, what would be the most underlying uh, etiology there? What would be the most common underlying etiology there? For bolus impetigo, that's staph. Yep, exactly. Anything bolus, you always want to think staph because staph just creates these bulli. It has the, has the factors. It has some special proteins that allow it to kind of stay in like more form. So exactly. Normal impetigo, and you can go to the next slide where we see impetigo on the top and bolus impetigo and the remnants of blisters on the bottom. So normal impetigo, think strep. Uh, bolus impetigo, think staph. All right, Bobby, the next slide is just, do you know it or not? folliculitis exactly folliculitis so if you see something that kind of looks like acne you see some little bit of pustules but they're like on a weird distribution or they're all around some hair follicles or maybe someone just shaved think about folliculitis that's all i wanted to say with this slide mm -hmm. do so, you know the term for people who are shaving who get folliculitis it's got a special name no i think of like i'm thinking about like either pseudofolliculitis or folliculitis barbae Right, yeah, I believe it's like pseudofolliculitis barbae, as if it's like shaving related, especially in like the beard distribution. Right. Cool. All right, Bobby, so I have another patient. It's a 23-year-old uh, female. She comes to you with uh, acne, actually, and she says, hey, my acne is so bad, I would like to have some medication for it. And you say, okay, here's some doxycycline. Here's the antibiotic that we often use for uh, acne. What's the thing that you need to warn her about doxycycline? photosensitivity photosensitivity fantastic and then she goes oh this didn't work for me i think it is probably worse than my menstrual period what medication would you give then is it clithromycin clithromycin can't it's, you use topical it's not an antibiotic menstrual period there's two answers in theory 
Wait, what? So this, uh, she takes Doxy. It's not working for her. She realizes, hey, my acne's worse when I'm menstruating. Oh, okay, I understand. So you can give her spironolactone. Fantastic. Or con oral contraceptives, but spironolactone is always a good choice as well. And, and I've seen some physicians do that. And then finally, none of this is working. You finally go, hey, let's start you on some Accutane. What is Accutane? Um, and what are some of the things we need to worry about? Accutane is isoretinoic acid, which is a derivative of vitamin A. The main thing that you have to worry about, and that I believe is actually mandated federally, is the patient needs to be counseled about the teratogenic risk. So they have to sign a contract saying that they'll be on two different forms of birth control. You have to do a pregnancy test before you start them on the medication. And then the other, I don't know that this is a big risk, but is something that can show up is actually they can get pseudotumor cerebri from it. Yeah, great. Fantastic. So yeah, Accutane, teratogenic, huge thing. Pseudotumor, huge thing. There's some concern about suicide. It's it's debatable. Um, and then also like people need to follow up actually basic labs just to look at their hepatic function because there is some hepatic um, damage that could occur in theory. Right. So and dry lips. Like that. Right. I'll drink. You got that all right. All right. Fantastic. Are you familiar so, with the popping subreddit? Oh, no. Don't tell me about that. I'm going to be on it later. I follow Dr. Pimple Popper. Yeah, it's basically like that. It's good stuff. I like that. That doesn't that doesn't gross me out. The stuff that grosses me out is like nose and like uh, oral secretions. Like I had a patient a couple days ago who was like bleeding profusely out her nose and it was also coming out of her mouth. This is an ICU. And I was just standing there like, oh, and the, and the ICU attending was looking at me. He's like, don't you want to be a dermatologist? I was like, what is that? What does that mean? <laughs> this is not dermatology. What <laughs> usually stays on the inside. <laughs> I was like, I was like, dude, my one thing is like the mouth and like the nose and things coming out of it. Um, I was like, get one of the anesthesiologists in here; they can fix it. Mm -hmm. He was really funny. He's like, he's like, all right, we can't wait for ENT. Let's get some of these rhino rockets and put them up there. He's like, I can do them. Or Bo, do you want to put one in? I was like, no, 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 you can do it. <laughs> I love, I love that in like uh, intern year. Like you don't, you're not asking for like recs or anything. You don't really care. <laughs> so like, I'm sure if I was a med student, I'd be like. Oh yeah, Doctor Doctor Wong. Of course. Like, let me help you put a rhino rocket. In. I right. was like, no man. <laughs> Do it I'm yourself. good, bro. You you got this. <laughs> He's like, I heard it's just like a tampon up the nose. I was like, that doesn't mean anything to me, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to use a tampon. Like, I've never used that easy. before either. So I'll less... just leave this up to you. If anything, I'm less confident now that you said that. <laughs> right. I was like, I'm gonna sit here and actually write my note. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I digress. So I have another patient come in, Bobby. They're 25 years old. Uh, they're coming to you as a dermatologist from their PCP, and they're concerned because they have uh, these kind of like darker brown discoloration around their armpits. So what do you want to educate them about in this regard? And you can look at the next slide as a hint. They need to get their sugars checked. Why? Because they have diabetes. <laughs> they might not. <laughs> I forget. Or they're at they, risk for diabetes. Yeah, they have. Uh, 
gosh, what is it called? It's like Vellus skin with hyperpigmentation. It's almost like a little thicker, like acanthotic. Right. Acanthosis nigrans. Yep. Nigrans. Yep. Exactly. So, the patients like this, you want to think about like metabolic syndrome, and you want to make sure that they're uh, doing okay in that regards. There's a female population that you want to be concerned about, where I think that good step two hint or step hint in general would be a female that comes in. She's having trouble menstruating and also has this, and you would think about a certain condition. PCOS. Yep, exactly. PCS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, in which case you would treat them kind of almost like a diabetic uh, as well as giving them things like OCP. So, fantastic. <sighs> I will drink for that since I think you got part of it, right? I'll drink too. Yeah, I think, um, ah. I believe metformin is actually becoming more popular in the treatment of PCOS because mm -hmm. I suppose it helps with symptoms as well. Fantastic. So our next patient is a 17-year-old male. He comes in, he has these just kind of uncircumscribed, kind of random, red, erythematous macules, largely, maybe some papules around his entire body. And there's one larger patch on his belly, right by his belly button. Otherwise, they're all kind of small and maybe like one, two millimeters in size. What is the diagnosis? Pitoriasis rosea. Well done. Yeah, pitoriasis rosea. You can go to the next slide. It's a giant um, kind of red, angry rash, but it, it, it's often asymptomatic. Maybe it's sometimes itchy, but you have this Herald's patch, which is kind of classic. We don't really know why it happens. I think most people think it's probably like some type of virus. Like, you know, you think about like HSV6 and the rashes that those cause. And um, I think pitoriasis rosea is probably a viral exanthem. But uh, in any case, just know what it looks like so that if you see it, uh, you can diagnose it appropriately. I think it can be confused with sometimes secondary syphilis, um, in which case you would want to get things like an RPR. Cool. Nice. And then the next slide, Bobby, the, we're just wrapping down now. Actually, you did much better than I thought. Uh, these are just images of squamous and basal cell carcinoma. So for the listener at home, remember basal cells are pearly, um, heaped up borders, while squamous, you're probably going to see more ulcerative. If it is squamous, you can also think about like chronic wounds, so chronic wounds, you can actually have squamous cell cancer kind of grow in, within or around chronic wounds. And that makes sense because the cells are constantly dividing to kind of like help this wound. And if they're dividing, there's a higher chance of them uh, becoming cancer and therefore you get this squamous cell cancer. Right. Remember basal cell is the most common type of skin cancer, both of which are treated with excision, whether it's normal excision or if it's on the face or sensitive body parts, most surgery. Anything right. you wanna add? Which one tingles? Tingles? Mm-hmm. There's one that tingles. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know, man. I think I'd be guessing. I think squamous goes deeper, so I would guess squamous. Squamous likes to involve the neural sheath for whatever reason, yeah. so it can cause more uh, neural symptoms. And the actual name for a squamous cell carcinoma at the edge of a chronic uh, wound is actually a margillin's ulcer which does yep. show up from time to time definitely that's a great point and then finally the last slide here we have is just a bunch of different melanomas it's just good to know if they're going to give you melanoma it's going to be a question along the lines of what do you need to educate the patient on and it's going to be the a b c d e so just know those are melanoma just know that 
asymmetry and borders and colors and diameters and everything else, which is just a cop out. But uh, melanomas are scary. Uh, they're treated better ever now compared to 10, 20 years ago with immunotherapy. But still, something to just know if you see it on the test, what to look for and what to educate the patient on. But otherwise, I don't really think it's particularly high yield to know much about melanomas. I think there's one mutation that <clears throat> people should know for melanomas. Right, it's a nodular it. type, isn't it? Because that's the type that tends to grow down instead of laterally. Because <coughs> the main predictive factor in terms of melanoma outcome is actually Breslow's depth of invasion. It is Breslow's depth, yep. Yeah, and I, I was thinking of like an actual genetic mutation. I think it's like the, the BRAF mutation, oh. which is in one of the sketches. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is BRAF or... That sounds but like... other than that, I don't think there's there's too much to know about melanomas, for, at least for the stomachs, yeah. Lentigo maligna? Lentigo maligna, that's very right. That's a nice little slow sliver of a melanoma. Fantastic. All right, Bobby, if you go to the next slide. That is it for today. Bobby, how was your drink? It's pretty good. It's a pretty solid IPA. It was the Little Huma, or Huma, H-U-M-A, from Shorts Brew that they so graciously sent to us. I would give it a seven and a half out of 10. It's a pretty solid IPA. All right. And then if I go to beer advocate, the average is 3.7, which is 7.4 out of 10. So that's fantastic. Was it a pretty strong IPA or? No, it's not too strong. It's not, it's only like four, four and a half percent alcohol too. So in terms of like actual alcohol content too, I think it's a little light for an IPA, but it's pretty solid. I'd drink it again. Nice. I had the uh, Rolo from Longship Brewing Company. I actually really enjoyed this brew. I was, I've never had salted caramel stouts or salted caramel anything in regards to brews. Hmm. But this is really good. You know what it reminds me of is a Guinness. It tastes a lot like a Guinness. So I really like it. I would give it an 8 out of 10. Nice. And let me see what, uh, if there's any... Here, Untapped has a review. On average, I see a 3.81, so that would be, what, 7.6? Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. Yeah, Rolo. So overall, a couple great brews today. Nice. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, on the screen, you can see our website. If you're interested in uh, anything else that we provide, we have podcasts. we got videos. Uh, we got multiple practice exams up. You can see our buzzword store from there. And also our handle for Instagram if you're interested in following us and our uh, antics you can follow us there but until next time we will see you guys soon and look out for some more episodes cheers later <laughs>